Thank you. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you and as we consider what your word has to say about homosexuality, Father, we need your grace. We ask you to work in our hearts that we would be mindful of our need for Christ. I pray for myself that you'd give me faithfulness uh, to your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless us with your truth and enable us to see how we should live in light of your teaching, especially on this topic of homosexuality. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A St. Louis uh, church hosted a conference back in July. The name of the conference was Revoice Conference. This has raised concerns throughout the PCA as well as concerns being raised amongst other evangelicals and other traditions, really about the PCA's commitment to the biblical teaching on sexuality, gender, and uh, marriage. This Revoice Conference is concerning as we experience the dramatic shift that has taken place in our culture over the last 10 years. It's hard to believe where we are uh, today, where same-sex marriage is accepted, where one is able to assign gender at their choosing, and where so many are accepting homosexuality as normal. The stated purpose of the Revoice Conference is, according to their webpage, they're about supporting, encouraging, empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other gender and sexual minority Christians so they can flourish while observing historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. And my purpose today is not to attempt to address all the concerns about the Revoice Conference being held and it being held in a PCA congregation. But I simply want to show that this this questions about marriage and sexuality are not only questions that are being addressed and answered where there's change in the culture at large, but these questions are at our doorstep, our doorstep in the PCA, our doorstep here at Covenant. And so we need to know, we need to be reminded what the Scripture says about homosexuality, about marriage, about sexual sins. But we also need to be reminded, and this is where I'm going to end today, about our identity. Our identity is in Christ, and it is nowhere else. And so today we'll be looking at the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality as the purpose statement of the Revoice group cites but we'll be looking at it in the context of seeing homosexuality as sin, the context of seeing that the motivation that we all should have, including those struggling with same-sex attraction or homosexuality, is holiness. We need to be reminded that we respond to those who are engulfed in the sin of homosexuality with 
compassion. And we need to, to stand firmly on the fact that our identity, listen, listen, our identity is no longer in sin. <laughs> it is in Christ. I'm in Christ, period. I'm no longer identified with my sin. I'm no longer identified with sinful desires. So this is what we'll be talking about today. Sin, holiness, compassion, and identity. First, Scripture teaches all sexual immorality, including homosexuality, is contrary to God's Word. It is sin. Genesis 2 and verse 24 gives God's intent for sexuality within the boundaries of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The one flesh principle that we see in this verse, first and foremost, depicts the physical union of husband and wife in sexual intimacy. And so sexual intimacy is only for a man and a woman within the institution of marriage. That's God's intent. That is what he has ordained. That is the truth of the scriptures. Homosexuality and heterosexual activity, both that are outside of marriage, are sinful. Dr. Mark Dalby, president of Covenant Seminary, said this, God's intent for sexuality laid down in creation and reaffirmed by our Lord is that it is that it be expressed in marriage between a man and a woman outside this context. Sexual activity is sinful, whether heterosexual or homosexual. Now, Leviticus 18, if you read that entire chapter, and I would ask you to read it. We're not going to read that entire chapter today. We're simply looking at one verse in Leviticus chapter 18. And there's also a companion verse in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13. But if you read the entire chapter, you'll find that there, God through Moses lists all forms of sexual immorality as well as other sins. And it simply is a chapter that in many respects is difficult to read because it depicts just how perverted and sinful man can be and women can be. And so our our focus really is on one verse, verse 32, which reads, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And the implication there is it is also an abomination for a female to lie with a female as with a man. So it's both speaking about male homosexuality, it's prohibiting that as well as female homosexuality. And Paul clearly shows the sinfulness of male and female homosexuality in the passage that Josh read earlier from Romans uh, chapter 1, and specifically verses 24 through 27. Let me just remind us, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Paul not only shows here in Romans chapter 1 what God through Moses said in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 32 that homosexuality is sin, but he goes further. Paul uses homosexuality to show the essence of sin, the depth of sin. Dr. Al Mohler writes this, nevertheless, this, this specific reference to homosexuality here helps us understand the depth of sexual brokenness and sexual sin. We dare not miss this point or ignore Paul's message. Two Old Testament passages remind us or show us really the depths of sexual sin of which men are capable. We're not going to look in closely at Genesis chapter 19 and Judges chapter 19, but just simply refer to them. You remember Genesis chapter 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where visitors to a man's home, the the men of the town sought to know them. And it's very clear what to know refers to in this passage and many others in the Bible. It is to have sexual relations with them. And so these two visitors in Lot's home were sought out by the men of Sodom and Gomorrah for, for sexual, homosexual acts. And this brought about God's judgment both upon the city and upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Judges chapter 19, some of the men of Gibeah demanded to know a male traveler that was staying in a home. Instead, the traveler and the man of the home sent out the traveler's concubine who was abused by the Gibeonites to death. And her body was cut into pieces and pieces sent throughout the land to show the depth of depravity, the extent to which men will sin. I am gay or lesbian Because I was born this way. Have you heard that? It's a common way for some to justify homosexuality. Dr. John Frame describes this view as follows. An innate condition rather than a choice that cannot be helped. And therefore, it should be accepted as normal, natural, ethically right. And Frame shows... The error of this way of of thinking that something innate means that it should be accepted as normal. In fact, interestingly enough, Frame quotes the late Dr. Charles Krauthammer, who was a psychiatrist, amongst other things, 
Krauthammer said, innateness has nothing to do with normality. And so Frame argues many diseases are genetically determined, but they're not viewed as normal. He further makes the point that that some are predisposed to alcoholism, but we certainly don't view alcoholism as normal just because it is something innate. It's something for which some are predisposed, not to mention the fact that there are some that are predisposed perhaps to being alcoholics that, that never drink, that choose not to consume alcohol. I was born this way, must be understood in light of the Bible's teaching on sin. The fall of Adam into sin, Genesis chapter 3, made Adam and his posterity, you and me, sinners, depraved in extent. In one sense, we can all say, I was born that way. I was born with a sin nature inherited from my father, Adam, Romans 5. I was born dead in trespasses and sins, an object of God's wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. I was born with a deceitful and sick heart that is beyond understanding, and even as a redeemed person, I have trouble understanding my deceitful heart, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. I was born that way. Yes, I was born a rebel. I was born predisposed to rebel against God in every way. Dr. Al Mohler writes again, the biblical understanding of sin helps us to understand that every human being is a sexual sinner and every profile of individual desire is corrupted by sin's effect. Even as our bodies show the effects of sin, as we age, decay, and die, our affections show the corruption of sin because we desire what what should not be desired. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ must stand before the world and acknowledge that we often do not even understand our own desires and inclinations. Frame further says, the bottom line, however, is that the genetic element of sin does not excuse it. I am same-sex attracted because I was born that way, one might say, to justify sin or to speak of it in terms of it being normal. But the fact of the matter is, though it may be a predisposed disposition, it is a sinful desire, and to act on it is to sin against God. So the argument, I was born that way, in light of what the Bible says about sin, simply does not Hold any water. Second, holiness. The prohibition against sexual immorality in Leviticus was given in the context of God communicating 
what it means to be holy. And in fact, much of the book of Leviticus is about God calling his people, establishing a covenant with them, and calling them to walk before him and be what? Holy. In fact, Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, that that chapter begins with holy talk. Listen. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And then the chapter that follows Leviticus chapter 18, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Next week we'll end our series on Leviticus. And I'm ending the series in, in Leviticus looking at this issue of walking in holiness. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God doesn't prohibit sexual immorality just because he capriciously wants to. He doesn't prohibit it because he just simply wants us to not have, just to be straight and narrow. No, he does it because of holiness. He does it so we can be the people he's called us to be. His holy people who reflect his holy character to the world. Dr. David Peterson writes this, Many people who write on the subject of homosexuality considered it within the framework of justice or love or tolerance or personal fulfillment. But holiness is the theological context and motivation for the teaching of the Mosaic law about sexual behavior and holiness is also the basis of the New Testament appeal for, its, for distinctive sexual behavior. I find Peterson's words very helpful. We hear it all the time. I was born gay, and I can only be fulfilled if I'm gay. But yet the motivation is not personal fulfillment, tolerance, justice, even love. It's holiness. The Revoice Conference reminds us that many professing Christians struggle with same-sex attraction and homosexuality. As with all of us, in light of every sin, we are called to walk in holiness We'll consider that next week. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. We are called to turn from sin and seek Christ in purity. For professing Christians struggling with same-sex attraction. And the same is true with professing Christians struggling with any sin, any sexual sin. Holiness, not justice, love and tolerance and personal fulfillment is the motivation Holiness motivates us to obey God's will, to obey his intent for 
human sexuality and within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. Holiness not only calls us to turn from acting out in sexual immorality, but holiness calls us to turn from even the sexual desire in our heart, to flee from them, to turn from them, to repent of them. We are called to be sexually pure. And today, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, you are not only called not to act out that desire in being celibate, but you're called to repent of that desire. The act is sinful and the desire is sinful. Be holy, the Bible teaches, in deed and in thought. Third, the Bible teaches we are to have mercy and compassion for fellow sinners. I've mentioned this before, but years ago when I was in seminary, one of my classmates said that he believed he was called to minister to homosexuals. And I just remember that just absolutely floored me. I thought to myself, there's just no way God's going to call me to minister to those people. There, that sin is, is, is beyond my, ability in ministry, my abilities in ministry. Those people are too sinful. No way am I going to befriend a homosexual No way should we even allow one to attend our church. No way would I associate with a person, even a Christian, who admits that he struggles or she struggles with same-sex attraction or homosexuality. We hate the sin. And come on, let's be honest. Oftentimes we hate the sinner too. That's really what was behind my, my thinking when my friend says, I believe God's calling me to minister to homosexuals. And I thought to myself, no way for me. I hate that sin. And I hate those sinners. Let's be honest. Hating the sin is biblical. Hating the sinner is sin. We must not let sin be a barrier to engaging fellow Christians who are struggling with a particular sin or engaging a lost person who has been given over to a sinful lifestyle. Let me say that again. We must not let sin be a barrier to befriending, engaging, coming alongside fellow sinners who are struggling. And I want to challenge you, as I am challenged, to think about the the many ways that we hate the sin and hate the sinner and repent of that. Repent of the second part of that equation. And I have good reason to say this because Jesus hated sin. 
but he shows unbelievable love and compassion and mercy to sinners. And we have an example in John chapter 4. We don't have time to read that chapter, but I think it's, it's one of the most amazing chapters, at least for me, that I've read in the Bible. Because here Jesus, I mean, the holiness of holiness is there at this well in Samaria and this sinful woman who was a Samaritan, she had every, everything against her. She was really, in many respects, the essence of sin in, in that day. Not only a Samaritan, not only a woman, but an adulteress many times over. And she comes to Jesus, and many of you know the story. Jesus offers her water that will quench her thirst. He offers her himself. The one who had no sin, the one who was absolutely holy, did not allow the sin of this woman to be a barrier for him to treat her lovingly and compassionately and mercifully. Again, Dr. Moeller writes, when Christians address homosexuals and homosexual advocates, with the reality that the Bible clearly condemns homosexual behavior as sin, we must acknowledge that we are sexual sinners speaking to other sexual sinners. Armed with the Bible's profound understanding of human sinfulness, we understand that sin corrupts every dimension of human existence. Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well shows what this sinful woman most needed her greatest need was to her greatest need was not to give up her adulterous activity though she surely need, needed to do that and you know when we're talking to homosexuals we need to be reminded that a homosexual or if we're talking to anyone who is in an, a, a, a sinful lifestyle, we really need to be reminded their greatest need is not to not do that anymore. Their greatest need is Jesus. And Jesus here does not condemn the woman at the well. But he offers her life. He says, drink of this water that I have, and you will live. People need Jesus. And, the, and oftentimes, the vehicle for someone who needs Jesus to be confronted with their need for Jesus and to be called to believe in Jesus is the compassion of another who views himself or herself as a fellow sinner saved by the grace of God, who has compassion for that fellow sinner, wanting that fellow sinner to know Jesus. And the last thing I want to talk about today is identity. Our identity is in Christ and it's not in sin. We should be concerned on many fronts with this Revorse conference. 
I'm st- I still just have, it, it's just difficult for me to think of this conference being in a sister PCA church, but it was. I believe our denomination as a whole is, is standing firm on the biblical teaching. But it does concern me. Does it concern you? Given that there are many concerns about this Revoice conference, in my judgment, the most serious concern that I have, and many others, by the way, comes down to the issue of professing Christians self-identifying with sin. (laughs) The main speaker at July's Revorce Conference, and I quote from Kevin DeYoung, is is well known in the celibate gay identity movement, a movement which many authors and writers are happy to embrace It's a self-description of many represented by the phrase gay Christian or LGBT plus Christian. The term sexual minority was used at the conference. The term sexual minority is found in those who are advocates of Revoice Conference or the Revoice Movement in their writings and in their they're speaking. It's also a term, sexual minority, that's been embraced by the LGBT plus community as a, as a way of, of identification as a minority. So why is the label gay Christian, lesbian Christian, LGBT plus Christian so problematic? <laughs> now, this may really, I may not be able to pull this off but I've, I've developed a new term with a bunch of hyphens in it, so, I, so I, just give me a little grace here. I'm trying to make a point. Uh, what if I stood here today and said to you that, that I identify as a celibate, other than my wife, heterosexual attracted Christian? You got it? I am a celibate, other than my wife, heterosexual attracted Christian. Think about that. You want me to explain what I mean by that? You got it? <laughs> what, is that my identity? I mean, we may struggle with, with sin, but yet we don't, we're not identified with it. But think of how many Christians who or same-sex attracted and who kind of buy into the purpose of, of revoice or identifying themselves. I'm a celibate, same-sex attracted Christian. In other words, my primary identity is a sinful behavior and a sinful desire. If we have been united to Christ in saving faith, we are no longer identified with sin but with Christ. And the reason is Christ has paid for our sin. He has freed us from the guilt of sin. He has freed us from bondage to sin. He has freed us. 
from the penalty of sin. Now listen, I'm sensitive to our need to remember who we are as sinners. I am sensitive to the need of recovering, uh, people recovering from addictions that need to view themselves always as X, as this this a way to help them remain clean. I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to that. But the good news of the gospel, however, is that we are no longer identified with sin. We're identified with Christ. And I would commend Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, that where both are passages that identify us with Christ and that remind us that we're dead to sin in, in, in Jesus. But I want to focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, as well as 1 Timothy 1.10, also prohibits and condemns the sin of homosexuality. But in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it's just a beautiful passage that, that, that reminds us of our identity in Christ and that through the power of Christ, we can change. <laughs> we can be transformed. People say, hey, I was born that way, meaning I can never change. It's the way I am. No. In Jesus, a practicing homosexual can be healed. In Jesus, a person totally given who pornography can be healed. By the power of Jesus, we can be healed and changed and transformed. And Paul proves it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. (laughs) And such were some of you thieves. And such were some of you greedy, drunkards, swindlers, sexually immoral, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You were radically changed. You were made holy. And such were some of us. What represents your such? For some of us, the such may be same-sex attraction or homosexual or heterosexual sinful acts or sinful desires. 
whatever your such is or my such is, we've been cleansed of that. We've been freed from that. Listen, it's no longer our identity. Our identity is Christ Jesus. I have a book here. I'd be happy to loan it out to you. I was going to read some of the excerpts, but I won't. It's a book that's put out by Harvest USA. It is a ministry to homosexuals and those who are struggling with sexual sin. And it's entitled, Gay, Such Were Some of Us. It's a book that that details the stories of God's grace and the power of Jesus Christ radically changing those who are engaged in sinful behavior to now walk in holiness. There are 15 testimonies in this book. And I make note to this of this just simply to encourage you and encourage me that the gospel is powerful to change anyone. No sin is beyond the ability of the gospel to radically change. There is no such that is beyond the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Those with Christ's identity are called to live consistent with the life of Christ by the power of grace, to repent of sin, to pursue holiness, to have compassion on fellow sinners, and to celebrate our new identity in Christ. We are free from being labeled as such. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to take these, in many respects, very insufficient words of mine and just simply take your word and work it in our hearts to see the truth of your word concerning homosexuality, our need for your grace to pursue holiness, our calling to be compassionate to fellow sinners by pointing them to Jesus. And, oh, God, free us from all that, those things that are represented by that little word such, to just rest and celebrate our new identity in Christ. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.